Welcome to the Trinity Radio Podcast. This podcast has a video component found at youtube.com slash Braxton Hunter. This means you might miss some visual aspects of the show, but it shouldn't have a serious negative effect. We'd love it if you'd run over to the YouTube channel real quick and subscribe. And if you enjoy this content, do us a favor. Take a moment to give us a five-star review on iTunes and mention a couple of things you like about the podcast. If you really appreciate the show, you can help make it better and get extra content for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash trinity radio. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm Braxton Hunter. And along with me today is not my regular co-host, Jonathan Pritchett. Upgrade. Hey, pal. Good to see you back in studio, except we're not in our studio. I'm here with Inspiring Philosophy at our local church, where IP is caught on film here in the wild, um, (laughs) doing ministry out at local churches closer to the East Coast than where you're from or where you're at now. But IP, thanks for being here, man. Well, my wife says I'm wild, so. (laughs) Well, she, okay, she would know. Um, So, IP. You have become somewhat like the Beatles' invasion of North America, and I think with about that level of fanfare, you have come to TikTok. And sure. I'd, I'd like to know. I'd like to know. Of, uh, I have some questions about that. We've all seen. Many of us have seen the incredible work you're doing there, and the brilliant um, atheistic minds that you have uh, tried to grapple with and tried to impact. <laughs> and so I don't know why you're laughing. Um, so what I'd like to know is. Well, let's be honest, it's pretty bad. Uh, the, the atheist videos, not all of them perhaps, but most of them are horrible on TikTok. But I think the Christian videos are probably also kind of horrible for the most part. Is that right? <laughs> yes, there are a lot of crazy people on TikTok. It is a dumpster fire on a planet of trash, basically. Uh, the, 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 the worst, the dumbest arguments I can find on TikTok, and you go to the comments of some of those videos and people are going, yes, this is absolutely true. It opened my eyes. I mean, the other day I debunked yet again Alexander Hislop's nonsense that Nimrod was a sun god and he was married to Semiramis. That old chestnut. It's still out there and and people on TikTok buy it and believe it and Christians put it out and then atheists make just equally bad arguments in their own way. So is that, is that, I mean, that's obviously a bad thing insofar as we don't want bad reasoning in the culture to begin with, Mm -hmm. Uh, but people are free to give their bad reasons. Is, is, how is that uh, strategically? Like I would think almost like, well... On the one hand, it's really easy to shoot down. Some young apologists could cut their teeth on just answering really simple objections. But on the other hand, people do buy this stuff. So uh, probably overall a really bad thing, right? Well, the silver lining is what you said. I think it's a good place for Christians to cut their teeth on some really bad arguments and get started. Uh, the, the bad news is, is it's just that people fall for this. And unfortunately, a lot of like people that are, you know, they have the degrees just don't think it's worth their time to go on there and address that stuff because it's just so bad. But that's where the public is. That's where the people are now. TikTok is getting almost as much traffic as Google. Last year was getting more traffic than Google, which means to tell you that that's where everyone is going to get information. So we need to be there regardless of how bad it is to correct that information. And being on there, I've already gotten some testimonies from people. 
So that's what's important at the end of the day. It's like a deja vu because what you're saying about TikTok now, I do feel some of the YouTube crowd, professional people on YouTube who use YouTube to augment their other work or whatever they're doing in philosophy or ministry, and they are looking and kind of rolling their eyes at TikTok, but it wasn't too long ago that people were rolling their eyes at YouTube in that same way. Exactly. And so don't do that. Like this is where normal people, normal people are everyday people. I know that the people that are in my life that I'm closest to, they're just sitting there a lot of the time mainlining TikTok. And so that's, mm -hmm. that's a good place to go. Yeah, I think David that. Wood will say, and I, I can testify as well, that when he was doing YouTube 10 years ago. He would tell scholars to get onto it and they'd laugh like, that's not worth my time. Mm -hmm. uh, it is. And now they're, they're, they're regretting those decisions they made 10 years ago uh, because they, they can see the impact it can have. Yeah. Now TikTok is now that new thing. So get on TikTok. On, as much as I hate saying that, that's where the audience is. And until somebody dethrones them, we need to be on there. So here's to shift gears a little bit. Here's something that I know that when I have, when I've experienced doubts in the past, one of the enemy's favorite ways to attack the faithful is in this regard. And um, most of the time for me, it's, it's pretty, because I've spent a lot of time with apologetics and philosophy and things like that. I have some immediate intellectual things that I can go to, and that really is helpful for me in, in moments of doubt, which it seems like there are fewer of those than, than there ever have been in the past. But what sort of evidential pieces, if you were to experience doubt, would you most quickly gravitate toward for the truth of Christianity? Maybe you're just driving along one day and you're trying to say something, and you're saying something like, I don't even know. I don't even, am I just forcing myself to believe all this? Am I just trying to prop up a castle in the sky sort of thing? Mm -hmm. What's the, what, what immediately do you go? Well, of course not IP because X and Y. Right. Well, I mean, as Jeremiah 17, nine says, the heart is deceitful who can understand it. So don't believe in Christianity just because it makes you feel good. Believe because it's true. And that's what I, I, when I have doubts, it's typically an emotional doubt. It's never really an intellectual doubt. Mm -hmm. uh, the one thing I remind myself is look, Start, start from agnosticism again and follow the evidence where it leads regardless. Don't assume that a supernatural or divine event is unlikely just because, because you're presupposing naturalism is more likely. Mm. If you say a supernatural event is less probable because it's a supernatural event, you're presupposing a naturalistic foundation. So you're not being fair to the data. Start from pure agnosticism and see where it leads. And at the end of the day, there's plenty of evidence that God exists. I use, I use evidence I use that supports theistic idealism, that the universe reduces to more of an information construct and not an actual substance. Mind. In, which is dependent upon a mind, yeah. So I use arguments I've used, like emergent universe argument or, conscious cos or cosmic conscious argument, um, introspective argument, these types of arguments. And I go, theistic idealism is more likely to be true. Then I go, let me treat the Gospels like I would treat any other ancient uh, source. Treat them fairly. Apply the principle of charity and see if the evidence supports them. At the end of the day, I still see atheists out there trying to make alternatives to the resurrection, and they fail. They'll try to bring up, I saw a guy, one guy recently try to bring up like that, oh, it was just borrowing from pagan legends, which is utter nonsense and shows he hasn't studied them well. I've seen people try to argue that they were like just so emotionally wrought with Jesus's death, they had to come up with a resurrection to explain it which doesn't make sense because no other Jewish messianic movement did that. And that's not how they would have processed that. They would have said he's vindicated and taken up to heaven. They wouldn't say he's physically resurrected and that proves he's the Messiah. And that's just a tip of the iceberg. There's so many other problems with these arguments. If you go down and try to answer certain things with it, it just falls apart. Uh, and so now man, I'll make a minimal facts case. I make a maximal facts case. And I think when you study all the evidence for Christianity, it overwhelmingly supports it. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it makes me think like when you were um, 
if you were on your deathbed right now, this is one of those situations where on the one hand, we're talking about my psychology, right? I don't know. There could be states of affairs that would change what I would do or affirm in a particular situation. And that doesn't speak to the truth of the issue. It speaks to my uh, sort of uh, insufficiencies in seeing through everything clearly. Um, but if, you were, if you're on your deathbed right now, today, um, what, what do, you, do you think your credence in Christianity is high enough that you would have peace on that deathbed? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You expect that the next thing you will experience is, is an experience of Jesus or that there will be a next experience. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, who knows what the afterlife is like? Mm -hmm. You know, like maybe I'll wake up in purgatory. Mm -hmm. Who knows? But I, I do not expect that, I, that when I die, my soul will cease to exist. Yeah. I think I'll continue on and I think I will eventually meet Christ. I hope that's on my deathbed, but we'll see. Uh, like I'm not going to make any predictions about things that I have not, no knowledge or experience of. You know, so I was just listening to you talk to a bunch of church people, and I think it's important for people to know that mm -hmm. apologists like you are out on the road talking to real people and not just talking to people that are dealing with philosophy of religion and science all the time. Um, but, I, but I heard you say something really interesting. A guy asked you a while ago, so uh, what's the one thing, is there one thing that people ask you, like atheists might hit you with in a debate or something, and you, you just are sitting there kind of with, without a response? I don't really know what to say about that. And I thought you had a decent answer. Uh, could you talk about that for a minute? Yeah, what I said is like when an atheist asks, why hasn't God saved me? If you were right and the evidence is so overwhelming for Christianity, why have I not been convinced? And I honestly don't know the answer to that because I can't psychoanalyze everybody. I don't psychoanalyze people despite what some thumbnails say. Uh, I, I try very hard not to be that kind of person, even though sometimes I fail. But the reason is, is because I can't get inside your brain. Uh, but what I will tell them is what C.S. Lewis said, honest rejection of Christ, however wrong, shall be forgiven and healed. Mm -hmm. So if that exists, that's what will happen. But we also should know that from studying psychology, that's just not how humans are. We're not just reason machines. You put in the right input, you're going to be convinced by it. We are a combination of reason and emotions all the time. And sometimes we don't even know why we hold to certain beliefs. People spend years in therapy trying to figure out their own psychology and mm. why they believe certain things. And a lot of times we tell ourselves lies without even realizing it, mm. why we believe certain things. I'm guilty of that. So are you. That's just the way it is. Uh, so, not me, surely. No, of course not you. Yeah. So, but you know, that's just the way humans tend to be. So all I can do is present the data and say, look, here's what I think is the best explanation for reality. If you cannot offer a better explanation, that has more explanatory scope, explanatory power, more plausible, least ad hoc, I would say I'm still justified in saying this is the most most likely worldview at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And you know, maybe you're, you have some sort of door closed on your heart you don't realize, or maybe God is just waiting to reveal himself to you in the future. Your story is not fully told yet. I can't speak to that, but all I can do is present the data, and that's what I'm going to keep doing. So what I'd like to do now is present you with a couple of what I, because you, you're known for being able to answer objections really well. I'm not saying it to be funny or to brag on you. Seriously, you're known for being able to answer critics really well. And so I'm going to try to hit you with a couple of conversation stoppers and see how you would handle those. So okay. uh, here's one that I've been hearing from some people that I've been personally trying to do ministry with who are not online or anything like that and never have been. Um, but I've had two men recently uh, tell me that they are Christians. They affirm that this is true. They're evangelical. They've been trying for um, a couple of decades 
to to grapple with this issue that in life they've experienced tragedy and things like that, not worse than any other person. But now they find themselves um, to a point where they have prayed, they have read their Bible every day, they have looked for God to speak to them and provide some sort of comfort or answer or communication or anything. One of the guys told me even just a, a feeling or something that I could attach to it, you know, and say, well, maybe that was it. And he said, but I have never felt an experiential presence of God. I realize that I'm not guaranteed I will, but I just is it's just, I'm just to the point now where I think either God doesn't exist, and he says, but I think that the evidence shows me that he does, the Christian God, or and he thinks this is more likely God just isn't interested in ha in giving him that sort of comfort, and so perhaps Calvinism is true, and he's not one of the elect or something like that. Um, how would you react to someone like that? You, you can give them all the apologetics in the world and they're going to say, well, I grant all of that. But where is he? You know, it's kind of a divine hiddenness in the most microcosm of, of your own individual experience for this guy. Yeah, I would say he's being God and he's trying to let you know you're not. Hmm. Uh, and that that's hard for people to accept because we think it'd be easy for God to do that kind of thing. But remember, he's working with fallen people. Uh, he's working with people that are sinful and selfish, and that's all of us, and we don't want to accept that that's us. And we just think, well, no, it wouldn't affect me differently. And, and like you're saying, we may not even realize about ourselves all the time what our own thinking is. Right. We, yeah. we, we don't. Uh, but I mean, like, you know, I mean, my daughter will sometimes, you know, have, throw tamper tantrums because she doesn't understand why I can't let her eat sugar before dinner all the mm. time. Uh, well, we understand as adults why, but she, in her brain that's not fully developed, can't. Mm -hmm. We just have to, to accept that sometimes God knows better, and we need to realize that he is God, not us. You know, there was, um, I remember Tim Keller gave an analogy one time. He's like, imagine you, you, you found out you were going to get all this big inheritance, this, all this money. And you were, life was going wonderful. You were going to, you've met someone, you're, you got engaged. And then just before the wedding, you found out that you weren't going to get the money and your fiance left you. How would you feel? Used, abused? How do you think God feels? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I put in the time. I believe God. I go to church, but he won't give me that big, blessing bank account in the sky yeah. and he won't give me this feeling i need to know that he's there mm. you've married god for his money mm. not because you want to actually learn to know him mm. you want him to give you blessings you want him to give you this sort of like this special status maybe this sort of like solomon style knowledge that you sort of have or something you're not mm -hmm. you don't deserve that paul was told by god that my grace is sufficient mm. and in your weakness my strength is revealed and sometimes that can be a physical disability and sometimes that can be a mental uh, deficiency. Yeah, in somewhere. Paul's case, none less than Paul himself asked God three times to solve a problem for him, and he didn't. Yeah. Not in the way Paul wanted anyway. He realized there was a purpose coming out of yeah. it. But yeah, that's that's really good. So I would I say stop good. trying to ask God to make everything perfect for you and start trying to figure out how you can make the world better for God. That's yeah. what we're called to do. And in that, you will find God in ways you did not realize you could do. Sometimes what people need to do is go out and serve. And sometimes you find God that way. Maybe it won't be what, what you thought, but that's what we're called to do anyway. But um, IP, in response to that, I just have to say, you, you, you're always talking about all these reasons to believe that Christianity is true and that God exists, but isn't there evidence that the Christian God does not and cannot exist on the basis of the fact that there are also these things called felines that also exist? And surely there's a syllogism that could be put together to show that these are incompatible. What would you say about God's creation of cats? Why would God ever do something like that? I would show you cat videos for days until you, uh, you know, like, or, you know, clockwork orange style with the eyes open. 
with the rock music and the flashing lights. All the amazing, hilarious cat videos online of them just being silly and goofy and having cute little ears. And then Uh, I'd come out a defender of cats. Of cats. Yes. Okay. People, I will will say, people think cats are mean or rude. My cat, I have three cats, and my one cat, Oliver, literally starves himself when I leave. He was like, he gets so sad and depressed. And when I come home, he just like, he has to like sit by me and go, you're back kind of thing. So yeah, yeah. they can be very much like dogs, Braxton. You yeah. just have to open your heart. Well, uh, what, what do you not like about dogs? I like dogs. What do you like more, dogs or cats? You can't say the same. It's impossible. That, that's, that, that's a false dichotomy. I, my dog that died a couple of years ago, Sadie, it was like, was one of the greatest dogs ever. And I met my current dogs are dumb as bricks and they, they don't know how to display emotion as well. I like my current cats probably a little better to be honest, but I do miss Sadie as a great border collie I've ever greatest border collie I've ever had. So it, it's about the animal itself. What's your favorite name you have for one of your pets? Uh, well, my, our dogs are named Thor and Loki, which I just find funny, but yeah. we didn't name them that they came from the shelter like that. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, we'll, we'll go with that. All right. So let me ask you, um, uh, do you have, a, okay. I didn't ask you about this one before. Okay. Okay. I'll move on. I'll just move on. No, I'm going to ask you. Okay. We can edit this out if you don't like it. Okay. Do you have a view of inerrancy and either way, can you speak to the issue? I don't even know what that means because everyone defines it differently. It's like, is it, so you mean, is the current translations inerrant? Okay, well, are the current manuscripts inerrant? What's inerrant? The original copies? The autograph. The original. Okay, well, we know there are variations between the manuscripts. Yeah. So, sure, maybe the originals could be inerrant, but we don't have access to those at this point. Yeah. Uh, so we need to go with what we have, which is the manuscripts. And I can argue they're very reliable, very trustworthy. They give us accurate information. But I don't have to accept that they're inerrant. What if, you, what if we said it? Would you agree with an inerrancy position that says something like, the Bible is without error in what theological truths it intends to teach? Yes, that's okay. fine. All right, that's that's good. Uh, let's see. I've been crit- uh, criticized greatly. I have a Genesis series, like you mm-hmm. do. I have a verse by verse through the book of Genesis and then through the book of Jude. The thing I've been most criticized about, um, even though I talk about as many views as, as I'm aware of on a lot of these things, in Genesis of all places, one of the things I've been most criticized for is affirming that, at least in some sense, this is Mosaic authorship, that Moses wrote much of the book of Genesis. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, we, we hear about the, the documentary hypothesis in response to this, and I've been told that I'm just out of step and that if I, I should get with the program and realize that, that this is just um, uh, laughable, should I be embarrassed that I affirmed mosaic authorship, at least in some measure, in that series? No, I don't, I don't think that even makes sense. I mean, some scholars will say even sections like Exodus 15 are very old. Uh, go back, going back to maybe the uh, the end of the Bronze Age, even. Mm. I mean, here's the thing. This is what I started to tell people. Let's start in the New Testament, okay? Did Paul write his letters? Well, I think so, but he says at times he worked, wrote through scribes. At the beginning of Thessalonians, he mentions other authors. Same at Galatians, he mentions there's other brothers with him. A lot of these letters that Paul wrote were community efforts, if you E. Randolph Richards will note. Uh, the, these these were not just Paul going in his office to write a letter. These would have been public things. There have been a scribe there. There have been other people there that may have come in and out, help contribute to sort of structure the letter. And the scribe would contribute more than just dictating. Sometimes they would structure things for the author to help it sound better. Now, that's a community effort, but we would still f- affirm uh, Pauline author- authorship there, which is, which is fine, but we could still understand he wrote through pe- other people. I could affirm that Isaiah wrote a lot of the book of Isaiah, but a lot of it was sort of written after he died. And Michael Heiser has a really good analogy. It's called the holy stapler analogy. So Isaiah dies one day, okay? And all of this, oh crap, he's dead. We gotta get all his things. Let's gather this and that. 
Anybody got a stapler? That's not what they're going to say. They're going to say, anyone really good at writing? Mm. We need someone to sort of put some sort of narrative structure to this, make it make sense. And that, and so if God can work through a scribe, he can work through, just like God can work through an original author, he can work through a scribe to help structure that. So yes, you could affirm that some of this goes back to Moses. I do. I definitely I do. And that's because I've read scholars like Joshua Berman or Benjamin Kilker, uh, who've made some pretty good evidence for that. Kenneth Kitchen as well. Mm. So, but you can also affirm that, you know, that as time went on, they may have added some commentary to help explain things like Moses died, Moses' death. I don't think sure. Moses wrote that. Uh, Moses, it says Moses was the most humble man <laughs> yeah. in the book of Numbers. Yeah, he wrote that. I don't that. think Moses wrote that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I think a later scribe was writing that. But even the most, or maybe not the most, but, but some of the most conservative people on Mosaic authorship would still grant that, yeah, some of these are editorializing things that came mm -hmm. afterwards and like what happens after his death and things like that. Just not really a problem. Or when it says, this is still standing here to this day or what, you know, things like that. Um, yeah, so that's that's really good. And yeah. one of the things is, I, I think people should check out your series on that sort of thing. Because, yeah, yeah, I got a series on the documentary hypothesis. Mm -hmm. The first video is called Challenging the Documentary Hypothesis. Mm -hmm. And I also put them all on a playlist on my channel. You know, I've noticed that in debate, you're known for debates. I just told people that the people in philosophy of religion out there, many of them know you as the most robust defender on YouTube and now perhaps on TikTok. Um, and that's a, I, th I seriously, I, I think that's a great honor that you have and you've worked for, and I'm honored to be your friend and know that about you. And I mean that in all sincerity, even if I'm hey, a bit too sincere hey, here. Hey, hey, we're not friends. <laughs> yes, we're right. brothers. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Amen. But I've noticed in debate when I've done debates that it's created in me a situation where I don't really get to affirm whatever I want to affirm. There are things that maybe I want to affirm because uh, my friends affirmed them or mm -hmm. because maybe someone that meant a lot to me as a mentor affirmed it and I don't want to let them down. But I found that when I'm going to go up and debate someone, it's not just public speaking. That guy is going to do everything he can to take apart what I just said and show that I'm wrong, which means I have to affirm uh, things that I believe are actually defensible. And the things that are most defensible are the things that happen to be true. Mm -hmm. So this means that I've had to whittle down and change and alter my views on certain things in ways that haven't always pleased people. And I know that's true about you. And I wonder if it has something to do with that process of debating and having to really see or preparing for debate and having to shift, sift through like that. Yeah. You got to defend what's true. Uh, for example, I, I uploaded an Exodus documentary once arguing for the early date of the Exodus and then I found out that there was a not, all the evidence that I used was not really good evidence. Mm. So I didn't want to take it down, but I did. And I took it down and redid it because that's where the evidence was pointing me. And I know for those that saw that happen online, mm -hmm. um, I know that that was a big deal because you had um, sent it to certain YouTubers like me beforehand and said, hey, when this goes live, will you promote it? I, I mm -hmm. really have worked hard on this. I put my heart and soul into this. And you really did. So when um, a, an archaeologist, I guess, came an along, Egyptologist. Egyptologist came along and, and, and pointed out some problems, it really had to take an act of humility to... Mm -hmm to say, ah, I think you're right. Especially since he wasn't the nicest about it. <laughs> yeah. No, but I mean, honestly. But you're grateful. Yeah, well, sometimes we need to be, uh, people need to be hard on us so we actually learn uh, mm -hmm. because, you know, I, I attack other beliefs really hard sometimes so that they, because sometimes people need to be humbled. How do I know? Trust me, I know because it's happened to me. And so sometimes that's what people need. Mm -hmm. So I'm grateful that that happened, but I, I didn't want to take it down. I didn't want to redo it. I didn't want to take the late date view, but that's where the evidence was at the end of the day. And so sometimes, you know, 
sometimes you need tough love. If you're a young apologist out there, and even if you disagree with Mike or me about a number of different things, I think you should learn from that. I think it's important to realize that you don't have to go in there slamming the pulpit saying, thus saith the Lord, when you don't know for sure what the Lord thus saith. And if you find out later that you're wrong about something, it's okay to back off because what I've seen is not only with you, but with other people who've, who've admitted when they got stuff wrong, including myself, is that people actually appreciate that more. They, they find you more reliable because they think, okay, well, if he does get something wrong, he's willing to retract. Yeah. And I meet people that, that we tend to psychologically assume the opposite. They can never admit they're wrong because their audience will turn on them. Mm-hmm. So I've corrected people on TikTok uh, when even many of their own audience members were saying they're wrong and they refuse to apologize or take things that say, take things down. And they'll tell me, you don't understand. And I'm like, trust me, I do. Uh, you don't know my history. Yeah, that's right. All right, last question. Um, and perhaps the most pressing of all. As brief, as briefly or as long, as long as you like, what are the fundamental reasons people should not treat the Lord of the Rings uh, fan fiction series as though it is Tolkien canon? And if there's a way to connect that to actual real world importance of worldview, that would be great too. Yeah, you don't treat it like Tolkien canon because it gets so many things wrong. It gets a lot of his lore wrong. You have characters that are supposed to be separated by a thousand years living together, uh, which doesn't make any sense. Uh, so they didn't care about Tolkien when they made this story, even though they said they did. So let me just, uh, the show creators won't watch this, but you know, just in case. I'm sure they uh, You guys don't care about Tolkien. You did it when you made that show and don't lie to us and tell us that you actually did. Preach it, bro. You spit all over his work. And I would tell that to your face if I ever met you publicly because it's called Tough Love and you need to hear it. Come on now. <laughs> well, you know, are you okay with it? Are you okay with it? If we treated it like fan fiction, if no. we said this is a fan fiction, it's a high budget, high concept fan fiction, but that's all it is. Fan fiction would be too nice. I would, it's a rude to people who've actually put time into making fan fiction. <laughs> you think there's good fan fiction? There's good fan fiction. That's not good fan fiction. The dialogue is awful. For example, the, the, the characters do things that don't make sense. Like try to swim across a massive ocean mm-hmm. or try to do diplomacy by insulting people mm-hmm. or think they can survive a pyroclastic flow. I mean, it's just, it's so bad, but the problem with this is that everyone thinks they can do better by inserting their own vision into something. It's something already happened really well. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's, it's not about, about you show creators, but that's, that's what Peter Jackson did when he did the first films. It was about Tolkien and his vision, trying to preserve that. Not trying to make it his own vision, even though he got some things wrong. He was trying his best to give us Tolkien's vision. Mm. And sometimes that's better. Why Hollywood takes stories and they make it all about them. Well, hi, what do I want this to say to, to make it say, to give my ideas through? Preserve art for what it is. If you have ideas you want to put out there, write your own dang story. Come up with your own art. Stop trying to pervert other people's art and make it what you want. And ironically, that's what Tolkien said happens. Because in his history, uh, the creator, Eru Luvatar, sings the song with the Einar. And Melkor comes mm, along and says, well, I'm going to sow my own discord and make the song about me. And he becomes the Dark Lord. Hollywood becomes the Dark Lord all the time when they try to sow discord into great works of fish- fiction that have already been made. And they try to sow discord into it, turn it into a perverted self-glorification image. And that's all the Rings of Power is. And I would say that to their faces. I've heard people say that there should be a 300-style film of Samson. I'm wondering, <laughs> what, what would be your, if you had to pick a Bible story that you think perhaps it's obscure or perhaps just hasn't received the right treatment, what, what would you do and, and in the style of what film? Something you'd have to think about? Well, I, maybe, maybe David running away from Saul. 
Mm. That would be an interesting study of psychology and expect, especially when he has a chance to kill Saul and doesn't. Mm. Like that'd be a really interesting study yeah. in terms of psychology, and then him eventually becoming king, overcoming all these trials. But don't white don't don't like uh, make it so Lifeway and so Christian Bookstore that it doesn't have the grit and power that the story actually has. No, there will be blood. Yeah, and <laughs> David needs to David needs to be the quintessential. I mean, he needs to be awesome. Yeah, he needs to be a young boy who struggles with pride and ego for killing Goliath. And then still, and then guitar plays guitar. Sure. Mad at God. Now that he has to run and live in exile and work with the Philistines, you got to have him because David was an imperfect person and he therefore needs to be an imperfect person I've ever put on film. Goliath's sword, big, like, like final fantasy style on his back. Really big. <laughs> yeah. I can imagine. Also final fantasy style hair, you know, like it's <laughs> so extruding everywhere, wind, yeah. you know, and then you do some like Japan anime things like, Hah! like, you know, no. We're going to make it happen. we got to find a way to make it happen. Okay. Anyway, listen, this has been a blast, IP. I'm glad to call you a friend. Glad to, that you've been here with me so much. Um, we're just going to make a room in our house and call it the IP room at, uh, at Hunter Manor. So, But uh, I'm glad you're here, glad you're doing what you're doing. And, uh, folks, we'll see you next time right. on Trinity Radio. <laughs>